in the 90s, my guest today on the program was hard to get. Today, he's hard to find. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Monday, Monday, go away, come again another day. Sick and tired of Tuesdays, Wednesdays could be better. Sitting in the office, I'm aware with it Thursday. Woman, Daddy, Friday. my guest today on the program, Owen Weiss. Let me tell you a little bit about Star Club and Owen Weiss. Okay, so if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you've heard me talk endlessly about Star Club. The song you just heard, Hard to Get, is, in my opinion, the best pop song of the 90s. And the band's self-titled debut album from 1994 is just perfect. And when it was released, it seemed like Star Club was positioned for a long and decorated career. But that career never happened. And although they signed the biggest contract for a debut album in Island Records history, the label simply lost interest after the album didn't scale the heights they expected it to, and they very quickly dropped the band from their roster. Now, admittedly, I've been obsessed with the Star Club story for years. I never got how a band this good, a band shot through with so much talent and so much promise, could just fade away with only one record under their belts. Now, we've done several episodes with the band as a kind of, you know, post-mortem, trying to figure out through reverse engineering and memories what exactly went on. Owen Weiss, who was the singer, he did an episode. Then Owen and bassist Julian Taylor, they did one. And then guitarist Steve French, he did an episode as well. And slowly but surely, the picture of the band's demise, it started to really come into focus. Yeah, they were dropped by Island after only one album. That's true. But the unraveling of the band itself had been in motion long before they were dropped. So Owen's been a friend of mine for almost 20 years. We used to talk all the time, and he's one of the smartest, funniest, sweetest guys around. And he's what a lead singer should be. Confident, brash, charismatic, and absurdly talented. But about a year ago, he kind of vanished. Social media went dark, calls and texts were never returned, and the silence was not only deafening, but troubling as well. The fact is, I still don't know where he is or if he's okay. Several people who know him have contacted me to see if I've heard from him, and the fact is, I haven't. I've tried, but there doesn't seem to be any way to find him. So you're probably wondering what this episode's all about, and what it is you're about to hear, and I'm going to tell you. 
So I guess in a way, this episode serves several purposes. For starters, Star Club is an unfairly undocumented band. I can't find any live footage. There are barely any photos of them out there and almost no additional audio with the exception for what's on the record. So this episode serves as a way to document them further and remind people about how great they were. Secondly, Owen told me he had nothing in terms of ephemera from the band's time together. And not only that, he hadn't thought about their tenure in years. And he was thinking there was so much that he'd forgotten. Remember, Star Club got together when they were in school and they were like 12 or 13 years old. So it was a while ago. Owen wanted to have a series of conversations where his memory would get kind of toggled. And in chatting, he'd dust off memories that hadn't occurred to him for a while. Look, these guys were signed to the same label as U2 and Bob Marley. They toured the country. They had a video on MTV and VH1. They were in it. And when you're in it, things happen. And those things are fun to hear about. I should also add that Owen, after Star Club broke up, joined Echo and the Bunnymen as a touring guitarist. So he does have some stories about playing Letterman, playing Glastonbury. So those stories are interspersed in this interview along with stories about Star Club. And finally, this is just a great chat with a great friend about a life that very few of us get to live. So join me and let's live that life through Owen Weiss as he remembers what it was like to be in a band in 1994 on a very major label and things get handed to them and things get taken away. Here you go. My chat with Owen Weiss, preserving the legacy of Star Club right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. from Paris where we'd done a TV show over there um, which on what I presume would have been an important program in France I don't know anything about French music scene or French television really um, but we did this this kind of live show in it and I remember the the studio had had um, tiered seating going up so it's kind of like a, a, a posh lecture theater thing um, I love that about France, though. They, they, every, there's, there's like an intellectual aspect to everything. You know, when you talk yeah. about music, you know, you'll be interviewed by a fucking professor and then there'll be lots of people with their, you know, with a sort of Descartes pose going on, kind of, you know, really, oh, really, I'll do it clean. What, what, could, <laughs> what could they possibly mean by do it clean? Is it, is it actual cleanliness which we are discussing or, or is it a kind of uh, uh, emotional, uh, you know, I'm going Russian, sorry, the accents are a bit <laughs> off. I haven't been up long enough. So anyway, um, we'd gone from that uh, on to a little, very, very small plane. And at the time, I had a, a horrific fear of flying, which started um, all the way through Star Club times and lasted pretty much all the way through Bunnymen times. Like for all the time that I was flying for a job, I fucking was terrified and hated it. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, it was really bad. Like, uh, you could put me in in the middle of a fucking bar in, you know, in in London, and I would just fucking shout Chelsea accounts, and I'd be okay with that level of risk, which is f fucking severe, right? You just <laughs> die. 
Yeah. But getting on a plane where the the risk is is fairly minimal, I'd just be sitting there. I fucking you could see at the end where my hands have been gripping the seats. You know, they had new permanent yeah. waves in in the plastic. I don't like it at all. Um, which led me into a, a lifelong relationship with benzodiazepines, which we're still very much together. So <laughs> you guys, you guys are still seeing each other. So if yeah, we're still seeing each other. Yeah, we um, we it's one of the best relationships I've ever had, actually. When you fly and you take a benzo, what happens to you? You just go out. You're out. Well, I did it first, uh, and then you know, due to the nature of that that particular medication, the, it, you have to take more and more to actually go out. But I don't know, at some point, I think, I think it was probably around the time that I realized that my life was actually not that important after all. Um, you know, that I just, I wasn't so worried about dying in a plane crash. It just, it, it didn't, I can go on a plane, like, you know, when I've flown to Thailand the last few times or when I've flown other places um, subsequently, and I just haven't really, it's like, ah, fucking whatever, fuck it, I don't care. You know, which is which is one of the benefits of of being depressed and, and nihilistic. Yeah. You know, you could yeah. die on that plane crash. You're like, mm, and yeah, who cares? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's that part of it. Right. Um, I just I still take the benzos because um, I, I like the feeling, and also you know, sleeping, especially if you're flying to somewhere like Thailand, is much better than not sleeping. I think. Um, so yeah but i don't take them for for the fear i don't feel the fear at all anymore at all it's interesting yeah i i was watch, so i was watching you i know you guys must have been traveling around a lot um mm. but the band sounded great you sounded great you look very cool um and... oh yeah that's what we're doing we're, we're talking about that story sorry alex yeah. you're just such a lovely guy <laughs> you just very patiently kind of guide me back to what the fuck it is we're supposed to be talking about that's why I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry anyway no, it's good um, the, yeah, the story about the Glastonbury gig was I realised now that um, what may have looked like cool to you um, uh, was in fact me being really fucking hungover. Like we'd caned it in, in France. I'm not even sure we slept overnight. We might have done. Um, yeah, I think we, 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 we had quite a lot of wine because, you, you know, you're in Paris. It's free. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, and 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 Gaulois or Gitane or whatever the fuck. So I was just you know, <coughs> and and not great. And then it was cold and it was wet. And then we got on this plane. And oh yeah, and this is where the the fear of flying thing comes in. In my fear of flying, it was mediated somewhat by the size of the plane. There was an inverse uh, um, law. Whereas the larger the plane was, the less frightened I was of it. I just thought, okay, Boeing seven four seven. It's a big fucking plane. It's got you know four engines, and it's got the little wingtip thing, and you know this is fine. This is okay. I get this one. Uh, the smaller the plane got, the the more insane the whole idea that the fucking thing would stay stable in the air would seem. And my absolute limit, my hard limit for um, for those who understand the term. Um, was helicopters never got in a helicopter um but my my soft limit was propellers of any sort that were exposed i mean so jet engines and, and large engines with jets kind of okay small engines with jets mm, you know double the dosage small planes with propeller planes no 
that's not cool at all. So we, that's what they, they didn't tell me this. I was like fucking B.A. Baracus, you know, Baracus, what his fucking name was. Um, well, they <laughs> just kind of didn't tell me what was going on. And we're walking across the tarmac and it's only at that point that we bypass all the other planes and I see the one we're getting on. I'm like, uh-uh, well, what, whoa, 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 what? What? seriously, this is the plane? I'm like, yeah, it's going to be fine, don't worry about it, it's all good. You know, the pilot is used to be, you know, Prince Charles's valet or whatever. Um, you know, it's, he's really good, he's in the SAS, it's all fine, don't worry about it, we've got the best crew. And um, I was not buying it at all, I could see rust, I could see, you know, bits of tape on this fucking thing. I mean, it also occurred to me that they don't actually make propeller planes in that shape and in that size anymore. You know, that, that, that <laughs> mode of flight has been superseded by jet aircraft. In the same way that if someone said, oh, we're going for a car ride, and they turned up in a car, that you had to manually crank the fucking right. engine front, right? Right. You know, it's, they don't do that anymore, do they? So they when you see a, a certain size of plane with propellers, you're like, well, hang on a minute. This is clearly only still extant because some cheap ass motherfucker has not stumped up for a jet plane that they have in the modern age, right? So I really, really, really didn't want to get on that and of course had to. Um, and then was in a fucking huge mood about it, um, downing all sorts of, of things to, to take the edge off. Um, of course, the good thing was in those days you could smoke on planes, so that helped a little bit. Oh right, you are you still so, could, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so coming from, so we've been in Paris, we've been on on the plane of death. Uh, um, I was very grumpy, very tired, very hungover, also drunk again from you know getting through the flight, full of absurdly strong French cigarettes, and then we get to Glastonbury which for most fans, most artists, I think would be, you know, some kind of achievement, but for, for, to me personally, and probably some of the other members of the band, but I can only speak for myself, it was just a fucking massive annoyance at that point because I was tired and all the other things I had. Plus Glastonbury, as you know, is nine times out of 10, it's just like the fucking Somme there. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's just mud and yeah. filth and, 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 destitution and awfulness and it's cold it's fucking freezing that day so that's why I had that coat on um i didn't know it was cold there isn't glastonbury in what month is it well it's notional it's england isn't it right so it could be it could be the middle of august okay. and, it and, be and it and it's fucking pissing down with rain and it's freezing cold um so i remember i remember doing that gig there's two things i remember about it um one is how pissed off I was about the whole experience and that I didn't want to do it, <laughs> which is crazy, right? Because it's yeah. one, one of the landmark things that you do as a musician is you play main stage at Glastonbury. 60,000 um, people, for those, for those at home who aren't sure what he's talking about, you literally are playing in front of 60,000 people. It's more than that. Is Mate, it more? It's more than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the, the, the show I told you about the other day, the good show at yeah. RFK, that's 60,000 in the stadium. Glastonbury, I believe, can get over 100 or maybe like towards 200,000 people once you take Holy into account. Okay, I didn't know they're that. All, okay. They're not all watching you, of course. I mean, that's why no. the other reason why Glastonbury isn't as impressive to play as, as you might think it is. At least when you play it when we did, which is in the, when you can see it. When you play at night, it's great. You can't see all the fucking all the mud and all the filth 
month, right? But in the daytime, when you can see the details, you're like, oh god. Um, but yeah, there's there's huge, there's there's nearly always more than a hundred thousand people there, I believe. But they're spread out quite a lot between the different. There's some fucking jugglers, or you know, yeah. I don't know what else goes on. But there's other there's other stuff, magic tent or whatever. Um, and so we're doing that, and I'm just thinking this is a huge inconvenience, and I hate it. So I remember that part. But I remember I remember thinking, um, a that I hate doing this, and b that it's actually really quite disgraceful for me to hate doing this. I should be in, I should be liking it, right? It's one of the canon. <laughs> it's in the canon of, of being a rock star is doing desperate Manchester. Anyway, so there's that bit, and then the second bit was this. It was fucking really really muddy backstage as well and normally all all the filth and the shit is reserved for the the idiots who pay money to go to these things in the first place which i've never understood by the way like i like a band but i i wouldn't even go and see the fucking beatles at glastonbury i wouldn't even go and see the beatles at a festival the idea of standing a big fucking field with with just loads of people who smell really bad and yeah, grounds churned up, and you can't go to the lavatory, and you know there's no proper drinks. It's all just watered down lager, and and all the drugs are bad, <laughs> and you're at the vagaries of the weather. You know you're either fucking sunburn or you're freezing. Just I don't get festivals. I mean, I was pleased that they exist because it was a nice income stream and a good ego boost to go and play in front of people. Yeah, I always look at people in at, at festivals and just like. What is wrong with you? And why? What are you doing with your life that you're spending fucking sixty quid to stand here looking at me? You know, really, <laughs> this, fuck's the matter with you? Don't do something proper. Anyway, so I had that feeling going on. But the other thing was all the filth and the and the degradation and, and the mud had not just, of course, confined itself to where the plebs were. It come back to where the VIPs, i.e., us. Oh, so at this strange. Uh, Macca was had to be carried. He put he put bin bags on his on his feet. In fact, I think he put bin bags on my feet, but I just walked. The rest of us walked. But he had like two footmen <laughs> carry him. Why? Not not in a chair, but you know, yeah. like, like grabbed a leg each, and he put his arms around their shoulders, and they they carried him through the mud, so that not you know his his uh, his vestments would be free of of earthly you know whatever it is contamination so that that's a clear memory of that's funny being, I, you being know carried from you know through the mud to the stage i think that's kind of emasculating i think that like he you know i can't i i can't see uh i don't know i mean i who i'm thinking of an example of someone who wouldn't have done that um well me i didn't do it yeah, you you exactly the, the weird thing is i will tell you this and i know this is controversial right. and barely anyone will agree with me but i don't think echo and the bunny men though you guys sounded great mm. i don't think of them as like a stadium band like i don't think they should play a stage that big um right. in the same way i don't think amy winehouse should have played glastonbury like i don't right. think it suits i don't think it suits i mean i can see like i could see oasis doing i could i could see kasabian doing or something but i really don't echo and the bunny men are such a moody dark band even seeing them in the sunlight was like kind of a weird thing. Yeah, that's that's not the right thing to say. I I absolutely agree with you. Um, I don't think that's controversial at all. Um, you need to step up your controversy game, Alex, if you want to fucking 
you want to play with me, motherfucker, you're gonna have to have to step up. The, the best, look, I said the best gig that, that we ever did, that I have ever done was that RFK stadium, but that was less to do with the fact that it suited the band and just to do with the fact that it ticked all the boxes that I wanted as uh, someone in a rock band to have had, you know, which was the fantastic hotel, you know, the perfect weather, the limo, the fucking yeah. backstage perfection, the the friendly crowd, the, the the awesome stadium thing, the fucking with the cameraman, so I fell over. The you know that that was also what I really liked about that show. Of course, it was really short because when you're <laughs> playing on a bill of other bands, you only need to do twenty minutes, half an hour. Or so it's like five songs or five or six songs. Yeah, which is the perfect amount. I always think that the best shows are when you have more than one band, anyway. Um, for if you're a musician, as far as I'm concerned, but also as a as a when I went to shows, I went to shows a lot, obviously. Yeah. Um, when I was coming up, A, because I used to like music, and also I wanted to see how good people did it so I could learn. Um, and pretty much every show I ever went to, even if I really liked the artist, I was like, good Lord, I'm fucking bored. You know, I'd start to zone out half an hour in. Really? And yeah, but start like checking the watch. Okay, so it started at nine. It's now <laughs> nine 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 oh four. That means we've got you know. I've done that now. But with bands that I like, you know, like I fucking love. I really want to see this band, and then you know, ten minutes in, I'm just like, oh, who, by the way, who didn't bore you? Who who okay. actually? Okay, so it's a very very small list, and there's probably more than this, but the one that absolutely. Uh, shoots to the to the top, stays at the top, and ends at the top by a massive amount is Prince. That entire show, I don't know how long it lasted, but it could have lasted twice as long, and I still would have loved it. It was fucking amazing from beginning to end. I was absolutely enthralled, amazed, uh, impressed. All of the all of the words with with an ED at the end. Where was he? Uh, it was Wembley Arena. Oh. Um, I went. I saw quite a lot of bands at Wembley Stadium um, in the late eighties, early nineties. At one point, we got taken to um, to Wembley Stadium quite a lot by record companies who were trying to sign us. And of course, they all had their own sort of top of the line bands that were playing Wembley at the time, depending on what the company was. So we saw gratis. Uh, Michael Jackson and U2 and Madonna and Rolling Stones and wow. I don't know whoever was around at the time and big you know the record company would go oh we'll take you to as part of their wooing you know you will take you to go and see it, our, our Mark band um, and Wembley Stadium was just a shitty place to fucking go for for music for me you know, it, you can't see anyone and the sound's horrible. And I just, again, I'm looking at my watch 20 minutes in thinking how to get the fuck out of here. Of course, it's in Wembley, which is a massive pain in the ass to get home from unless you live in Wembley. Um, but Wembley Arena, um, despite being in, in Wembley, is an awesome place. It's indoors. It's set up specifically for... Um, concerts and performances, whereas Wembley Stadium is set up, you know, principally for football. Yeah. And, uh, it, but it really wouldn't have mattered. I'm pretty sure if I'd seen them at Wembley Stadium, it would have been awesome as well. It was so, so good. And um, I saw Prince too, by the way, in, in the Oakland Coliseum here in California. 
and he was absolutely fucking amazing. Um, and he's amazing at everything, isn't he? That's the thing. That, yeah. that was the thing that was depressing as, as a music. Well, not depressing. Yeah, kind of depressing, actually, but also fantastic was that he'd get on stage and he'd just come out and he'd be brilliant at coming on stage. You're like, wow. Like, of all the people I've ever seen come on stage, he's the best at yep. that. He yeah. just walked on stage and he was really good at that. He'd fucking nailed that. And then he, 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 he started playing guitar and he was brilliant at guitar. And then he sang and he was brilliant at, at, at singing. And then he danced and he was brilliant at dancing. And then he got on the piano and, and you can see where this is going. And the same with drums. And, you know, every single fucking thing that kind of did. Yeah. He was, he was fantastic and, and peerless, I think. Okay, so um, he was great. Who else, who else was great? Yeah, see, after that, a struggle with bands okay. that I really liked watching. Um, I mean, I remember, going, I remember having a good experience watching Paul McCartney, which, okay. is, which is weird now because, you know, Paul McCartney's been doing this, came back and, and he's been doing his, you know, fucking Hey Jude chorus has been going since like 2001 <laughs> and hasn't finished yet. He's still right. on that. Right, um, but he but, was good. In the late 80s, they, he hadn't really done any Beatles songs. And it was a big deal that he was going to suddenly start doing Beatles songs. So, you know, we got to see a Beatle do Beatles songs live. That, that was, you know, it hadn't happened since, since they were together. You know, so that was a big deal. And so we, we were all huge Beatles fans. And, and my band went, this is before we got signed. Um, and, you know, the whole raison d'etre basically was of that band was trying to just copy or ape or, or, or like the Beatles. That was the whole deal with it. Um, so going to see Paul McCartney was amazing and it was kind of a little bit of a spiritual experience, but it's also fucking boring. I got uh, bored there too. Got bored there too. Um, and I'm trying to think of another, another show that I went to that I wasn't bored watching. Uh, I'm sure there's others, but the only one that really comes to mind was Prince. But I know from a, a performance point of view, um, and I also can tell you that this is not just me. This is not just curmudgeonly fucking contrarian Owen saying this. But sorry, ladies and gents, but a lot of people, when they're playing shows for you, they really don't fucking like it and they want it to be over with. Is that true? Yeah, fucking is true. Absolutely true. Um, there are points that there are gigs that everyone fucking hates doing from beginning to end that you just fucking grind through it at best sometimes it gets really bad there's arguments on stage and and the audience can tell that the band fucking hates it and it's just a, a an awkward and, and and unsatisfying experience for everyone concerned there's other shows <clears throat> there's other shows where oh my god i must have picked up covid at immigration yesterday <laughs> so this may maybe our last um, last thing ask me some good yeah, questions this, this could be it um so there's other ones where the audience doesn't know and they think, oh, what a great show that was. And I don't realize that the band fucking hated all of it. That's interesting. Um, most shows that you do, um, the band hates part of it. Uh, and then you get the odd show where the band loves all of it. Right? Why did, why did they not like doing it? Is it because it's just, it's so workmanlike? Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a bunch of things. I mean, yes, that's that's one of them is that, you know, when you're touring, you're essentially doing the same fucking thing every night. Right. And people have different different approaches to this. Some people like to keep it fresh and switch it up, which is what I used to try and do with Star Club, but we were not practiced or skilled or experienced or smart enough to do that well. 
and so often you know an attempts to switch it up just meant that it wasn't as good as it should have been um, I then came to the second school of we learn a, a set and then we perfect it and then we just do that right okay. and there's a good reason for that because you know it is work at that point and these are people who have paid good money and traveled sometimes a long fucking time especially in america people think nothing of driving you know 400 miles to see a show no people will do you that know, you, you don't do that and you, you end up in the sea if you do that in england but in america it's you know it's we're driving from you know california to fucking arizona to see our favorite band people do that shit people right do you do that um, i don't do that but people do that so so whilst on the one hand i think they're they're dumb for doing that i mean i wouldn't do it but on the other hand letting the the the, the uh, contrarian and curmudgeonly mask drop for a minute you know these are human beings that are paying good money to see something and you owe them you, you you want those people to have a good time right they deserve a good time yeah they're probably nice yeah. people um and even if they're not nice people they've paid you money and you you have to you have to try and give them something back so i then started signing i signed up to the that camp where it doesn't matter where you are you have to there's no there's no good reason why one set of people in one city that you like because you're in a good mood they get the good show and then the other people in a different city who paid the same amount of money they get the shit show just because you can't be fucking bothered that right. to me is really immature and and selfish and cuntish and although i'm guilty of it um i became less guilty of it as i grew older and realized the human cost, Alex. I know, you know, I get it. I mean, like George Carlin said, um, you'll appreciate this because you and I both love George Carlin. Mm -hmm. um, George Carlin was with a, a, a younger comedian and someone came up to Carlin and asked for an autograph or whatever. And Carlin was like super fucking cool. And the younger comedian said, <clears throat> why were you so like ingratiatingly nice? And he took pictures, he wrote, a, he signed a thing. He did a lot of really nice stuff. It lasted mm. more than a minute, basically. Right. And George Carlin said, because that was their moment, not mine. Yeah. Like, I had nothing to do with, that was, that was for them. They're, they're going to walk away. Yeah. That's their moment. And I need to help them through that. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a really cool way of looking at it. And yeah. as you can imagine, when you're in the, uh, through the prism of, of fame and fortune, it's difficult to, to not start thinking that you're the shit, you know? Right. And everyone else is, is a lesser being. Um, it happened to me. It definitely happened to Macca. It definitely happened to pretty much everyone that I know who got famous. Um, Young. And, Young. And, it's, it, and, and I don't even fucking blame them stroke us because that's just human nature. If everyone tells you and acts as if you are more important than they are, what's your reaction going to be over time? You're going to believe it. You're going to believe it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I was talking to, um, I was talking to someone the other day and I, Again, sorry for the digression. Marcus yeah. Aurelius popped into my mind, and um, <laughs> the fact that you know he apparently had someone walk behind him the whole time, saying, "You're only a man. You're only a man. Oh. You're only a man." You know, to stop you thinking, "I am the emperor. I can do whatever they want. I control the fucking Roman Empire. I, I'm the only motherfucker allowed to wear purple. Whatever the fuck it is." You know, right. once you get enough of that, it's very easy to start seeing people as lesser than you. Um, purely because um, of these things that really are ephemeral. You know, so, okay, so you, uh, a, a song that you wrote got played a lot 
and a number of people came to see you play an electrified instrument. You know, it's it, at the end of the day when you break it down like that, it's not it's not that fucking important, really. Um, and you need to you need to keep that in mind. You need to keep it in perspective that a lot of the people who come and see you, although uh, you know we musicians often view you punters with disdain um, for various reasons, some of which uh, are, are more reasonable than others. But amongst the audience, statistically, will be doctors and fucking researchers and healthcare workers and the people who fucking run the power stations. You know, we were talking a while back about what's essential and what's not essential. Right. There'll be people in your audience who do actual things that actually fucking save people's lives. And, you know, you can sing a high note or do a guitar solo, you know, and, and they're paying to see you. Now, right. I, I, get, I get that in entertainment is important and I get that art is important. And, but at some point you have to, you have to uh, get up the fuck over yourself and just go, okay, look, you know, there's people in the audience here who, who are doing much more important things than we are. Yeah, right. And, and also there is a, there's a danger in getting that gaze on you young. I mean, I think yes. that you go are, right? Like I think, cause I, I think, you know, Ian from the Bunnymen, when he got, when he became sort of, I don't think he was quite a deity, but he was sort of like a big poster boy. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, right. and in a cult sense, you know, ever since they started, he, he's had his cult status yeah. as a sex it, symbol or whatever. You know. Exactly. And it sort of, it grew um, over the years, but I think he must have been a fairly young man. Um, yes. You know, you were... No, I mean, he's, never done, he's never done anything else ever. Right. I mean, he just did that. That's all he's and done. He's, he's and uh, for you, having been in the band since you were 11, yeah. and you were you had eyes on you at a pretty young age um, yeah. and you didn't have to become oasis to still have a big head about oh people seem to really be and you're the front man um uh -huh. and people are responding to you and people want to want a little piece of that in some mm -hmm. ways yeah um, it's, you don't need to be you don't need to be famous you don't need to be rich you just it, no. it's, it's status and that essentially at the end of the day that's all it is all money is all fame is it, it's all physical strength or physical beauty is it's all status that's how we work as a species you know there's high status and there's low status and people aspire to one and dread the other uh, and if you're in a band you don't need to be successful if you're the only band around you automatically have status right um and people want to hang out with you and they think or or fight you or but you you, you get a reaction right right um you're on the radar how do you how do you get women to you know how do you get women to like you how do you get girls to want to sleep with you i was like well i just sing a song you know right. i go and do a gig in a pub i only made 10 quid but all the fucking women girls in the room are looking at you um and you start to just imagine that that's how it works you know why, well, why haven't you got three girlfriends you know what's the matter with you and it probably um, isn't healthy like i always wonder what i liked about the UK was it seemed like you could rise and fall in three years. I mean, right. you, could, you could. Yeah, I really didn't like that aspect of it, but what come on? <laughs> well, I liked it because I felt I feel like attrition is really important, and America has a really hard time letting people fade into obscure. There's this really great cartoon that I saw in the New Yorker uh, years ago, and it's this old shitty couple, 
mm-hmm. sitting in a crappy house with a shitty dog and they're just sort of like fat <laughs> and terrible and they're in front of the tv and, the, and, <laughs> and it's already funny right and the guy says to the woman he says whatever happened to just letting things fade into obscurity <laughs> and like the joke is because they are obscure but of course. like we tend to remix people in america here's a tupac hologram Here's people right. who are recording. Here's yeah, even people who are dead are still famous. Exactly, I'm still making them work. Or or Carmen Electra is still hosting a show somehow when she should be like, you know, she should be a third grade teacher now in Pennsylvania. Like, there's right. no there's no rise and fall anymore in America. And so what I liked about about the UK was that you could be on the top and then be on the bottom fairly quickly. So it it kept there was something at stake. I think at least. Right. Um, but it also, it's not, it's not healthy to be uh, just told that you're great, you're great, great. But I have a friend who is an actor, and mm. he will tell me there are people in the business who he, every audition he went to, they were there, right? right. For you guys, when Star Club was playing, yeah. was there a rival band? Was there a band where you're like, fuck, those guys are pretty good, and they're always playing the night before? Or who was the closest you had to a rival or someone you were maybe a little bit had your eye on that you were worried about? Well, there were, there were older bands. Like when we, when we used to play around it in Maidstone, um, there, were, there, were, there were bands who, um, you know, the heady age of, of 17 or 18 were doing shows, you know, yeah. when we were, we were 12 or 13. Um, so I guess there was, but they weren't really rivals because, um, course it was different audience as well and and anyone who's 18 wouldn't dream of mixing with someone that's 14 you know right terrible right um but the thing that we had that they didn't really have is that we wrote songs you know and we had we had a whole thing going on um in terms of of what our band was like it was like it was almost like a sort of a comedy troupe as well as a, a musical troupe there was lots of uh Lots of on stage. Uh, I hesitate to use the word banter because I loathe it. But there was there was a lot of on stage um, messing around and talking and 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 what we you know what counts for witticisms amongst fourteen or thirteen year olds. Um, so coming to see the band wasn't just like you know a normal show. It was you get to see the 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 gang in act doing whatever the fuck it was that they were doing um but other than that and then those those other bands who are older of course did what most people do which is that they they play for a bit and then they they get their job and they they go off and do that and of course we never did that and there was no one there, there were some bands that came around kind of afterwards there were other bands like when we got to uh, i went to the grammar school and i remember we did a show um that we put on and we had a support band who was another local band who was the same age um and well first of all they weren't very good and secondly they didn't really write any of their own songs and thirdly they just didn't have the the charisma we we had a, a charisma yeah um, a chemistry whether you liked our music or you liked us or not um we were very very clearly a band with a with a with a collective charisma um and so there wasn't really anything like that that we had to 
overcome or we had to be better. There wasn't like, you know, a fierce right, like a Joe Frazier to Muhammad Ali and you're pushing right. each other to, to do better. There was none of that. Um, of course, there were other bands, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't like Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Screaming no. Trees. It wasn't like that whole... No, it wasn't. It wasn't. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It, it probably would have made us a lot better if we had have had. Um, well, you know, the, the Beatles were a better band because of the Rolling Stones, you know. And, exactly. And the Beach Boys. And the Beach Boys were a better band because of the Beatles. And, and right. Elvis was, was you, know, you know, so you can trace all this stuff back. We didn't really have very much of that. We were very isolated in terms of, of who we listened to and who we hung out with. Um, and... Yeah, so, so we didn't have people with, oh, shit. We didn't go to a gig and think, wow, that was great. Let's, let's incorporate that into our show. Right, we okay. That. If we had had that, we would probably have had better shows. Um, it's, it's weird for me to hear that you guys, I thought you guys were all really close friends. It, it's weird to hear that you, that you didn't, did you guys hang out? Did you guys like- No, 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 no. I, I haven't explained this properly. It was, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more complex than that. We- didn't start a band because we were friends. We started a band because we were the only people, three people in our generation that we knew who liked the Beatles. And we all came to this love of the Beatles independently. Okay. And I happened to be in the same class as Steve and Jerry was in another class, but we were at the same school. um, Cornwallis Secondary School we were at when we met. And it was Jew's idea to come up with the band, which is weird because, you know, he's not the most demonstrative or commanding guy, but he, to give him his due, that was his band, his, his idea to put it together. Um, and kind of word went out that, that people were doing a band. And I don't, I don't remember exactly when I knew that it was Beatles based because I wasn't interested necessarily being in a band. I just yeah. loved the Beatles and wanted to, to do that, you know, um, and I remember that, like, the first week, everyone was like, yeah, I'm going to be in it. So the band had, like, 40 people across three classes who were in the band. <laughs> and by, you know, two days later, it was just the three of us, and it stayed the three of us um, for a while. And then we got a drummer who was in, it might have been in Julian's class or another class, but in our year. And he stayed with us for years up until about, a year or two before we got signed actually um so it's the four of us and we like i said we weren't we weren't school friends before we we started the band um it was actually again akin to the beatles like paul and john weren't friends right um george and paul were friends actually um and that's how he got him in but but it wasn't a friendship that brought them together it was it was the love of of elvis presley and Gene Vincent and, and Little Richard. That's what did it. And it's exactly the same with us. It was, that was the thing that brought us together. The drummer, Alan, was not a massive Beatles fan, but um, we were, so that's what we did. Um, and, but he didn't hate it. He just wanted to do more, you know, police numbers, which we did as well, because that was cool. But um, what we did realize very, very early on was that you had to be a gang you had to be a unit and one of the things that made the Beatles so attractive to everybody including us was not just the music but it was that sense of um, 
them being a gang, a unit, an indivisible unit. You know, you take Ringo away and put Jimmy Nickel on drums, it's no good, right? Right. Uh, think, think of the Beatles doing a tour without John or Paul or George. It just, it's no fun. Think of them doing an interview without all, all three or four of them chipping in and, and, and uh, working off one another. And it doesn't work. So we realized, I think, fairly early on, unconsciously or subconsciously, that part of what we liked about the band or part of what we needed in order to stick together as a band was to construct that kind of uh, that bond. And it was a bond that that was real. I mean, we were like brothers and it didn't matter who was on the outside they were on the outside and we were on the outside. So for instance, you know, I have my problems with Steve and, and did since fucking day one, but I put that shit to one side for years and years and years and, and assu assuming he did with me. Um, because uh, it was super important that the band came first, always came first, came before girlfriends, came before your actual friends that you liked came before your family, came before your schoolwork, came before everything. Um, and I do paint a, a picture sometimes of, of how much we disliked each other. And I think I, I do that for comic, comic effect. Um, you know, I, I did really fucking love those guys and I really liked them. And even Steve, who I think is a fucking dick. Um, I really liked him sometimes a lot he was fucking smart and he was funny and he was talented and he was he was interesting um and i sometimes dream about that i sometimes i i dream about about them and i dream about him actually quite a lot and i just it's always us being friends again yeah and then i hear something about him or i see you know someone tells me something about him, i'm just oh god he's such a fucking wanker I didn't, I, it's <laughs> never gonna work um, but I wish it would, you know, I really do. Yeah. I wish we, we could have some sort of rapprochement and we could, we could um, become close friends again. I, I, I can't see how it would ever happen, frankly. Uh, there's, there's too many differences in our personalities. There's, our lives have been shaped um, by circumstance. I mean, you know, I haven't seen Steve for 25 years maybe that's maybe. a long time it's a long fucking time but it's not like i'm seen him and he, he's been living pretty much the same life i've been living you know we live completely different lives different countries yeah you know, he's, he's, he's got married he's got kids he's you know he's vegan or i don't know he's whatever the fuck but you know we're so we're always very different personality wise and um what made it work in the band was that our lives were the same we lived in the same fucking house we did the same stuff right yeah and but as soon as that stopped we went back to becoming who we were
I mean, the things, things with Joe was that he was he was really important um, in that he was like the person that everybody liked. I see. He wasn't the person that everyone liked the most, like he, but he was the one that everyone disliked the least. <laughs> you could get, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like you just everyone, no one disliked him. Um, and he was he was a funny motherfucker too, and really smart and interesting. Good player. Um, he, he just. Excellent, excellent bass player. He's probably yeah. actually the best musician um, of me and, and Steve and, and, and Joe. Really? Um, yeah, Steve was really good at, at a young age. He was, he was like sort of a prodigy on guitar. Much, much better than all of the other guitar players around our age. Um, I thought I was like that on vocals, but I'd since listened back to some demos. So I really wasn't that good at singing. Um, but compared to the people my age at that time, I was really fucking good at singing. Um, but Steve was better, I think, um, and a better musician, a much flashier, um, you know, he would do a solo and people would be like, wow, including me, like he could do finger tapping. Yeah, you know? he's he good. He would sit in his bedroom for, for hours on end and, and learn Van Halen solos, you know, whereas I wouldn't, do, I just, I, I just, I'm not that personality. I wouldn't sit there and fucking devote myself to perf perfecting a trick or, or, you know, lick or a, a particular skill. Um, and he did that. And um, I think that's impressive. And I was impressed by it at the time. And I, I still am now the level of, of dedication and, and concentration he must have put into that. Um, but Julian was, his bass playing, usually he wasn't very flashy, but had good time and a good feel and it was, it was just solid you know and um when we did recording he was the one who would need when we were doing an album or whatever he was the one who would need to do the fewest takes he could just go in there and, and play it and, it and it was fine it was good it worked you know um i don't think he really knows how good a player he was you know, we've spoken a couple of times in the not too recent uh, distant past and he's been a bit disparaging about his own ability. Wow. And I don't, I don't know if he's being modest or if he doesn't really understand. But I remember, um, for instance, working with Chris Hughes and him really rating Julian as, as a player. Um, you know, a producer wants someone that can go in and do a job. Uh, and, and that's what he was able to do. So, so he, was, he, was, he was a good player uh, and just a funny, nice personable guy who, who people liked uh, whereas me, me and Steve were kind of without Julian as like our, our nexus uh, you know uh, our, our bridge 
it wouldn't have worked. So he was he was absolutely crucial to that band, despite not really contributing very much artistically at all. He didn't write any songs. Right. Um, you know, he, he he did his bass lines, but he, he didn't do much um, in terms of. Maybe he did. I don't know. If he ever listens to this, he'd be like, "I fucking did loads, you cunt. Why don't you remember bloody bloody blah?" blah, blah. <laughs> but this this is just my recollections. You know, you right. know how spotty they are. When but. But he, he definitely didn't write tunes and okay. he didn't have a huge amount uh, of inputs on the creative side of things, but he was hugely important in terms of holding the whole thing together, A, by not being detestable, but also he was like organized and he'd be the one that would, you know, usually drive us to the show. He would keep, uh, you know, the demos and, and, and the photographs and, and the lists of things that we needed to at one point when we were all living together in London he would he would also cook all our dinners right and wow. and we would we would take turns to wash up but he would be mum and and do the and do the dinner every time yeah without without Julian you might not think so but without Julian that band a wouldn't have happened because it was his idea and b never would have fucking stayed together at all did you ever hear the theory that in any group there's always the mother figure the father figure, the technician, and the clown. And so if you look at the Beatles, like who, who would be the mother and father in the Beatles? No, that's tricky, isn't it? Because, um, well, I guess that the, the, the standard reading would be, John would be the daddy and Paul right. would be the mummy and George right. would be the technician and Ringo would be the clown. Right, exactly. I, I guess that you could look at it like that, although I think it's arguable, but I, I get your point. Uh, no, I hadn't come across that theory, but it does make sense. And I do think you do need to have um, something like that. So in Star uh, Club, so you have, so Julian would be the mother. Yeah, I guess. Who's the father? Yeah. You, you're the father? Oh, come on. Oh, come on. I mean, what would you be? You, or te- so who's the technician? Well, Steve, Steve I, I think Steve would be the technician because okay. he was the one who was the most interested in the technical side of stuff you know he'd be the one that would be more interested in in the recording techniques and in order in pushing his guitar playing to a, a different level um he looked at, at music in in a more scientific way than i did definitely but he's a technician um, so all we're yeah. missing is a father and a clown so i mean the drummer i guess the drummer was so inter- at the time because it that shifted so much um but anyway yeah. i mean well, we were all fairly clownish anyway. Okay. Um, okay. You know, we, we had, this is a horrible thing, uh, just a really irritating sense of state, but we had a great sense of humor. <laughs> but we did though. We did. I mean, I like to think I was the funniest. Maybe they all thought they were the funniest, but the funniest of all was the three of us. Together. The three of us working off one another. It was like the fucking, it's like a routine that we did. Um, and you know, I speak to my mate Joel, who I, I, we grew up with and, and wasn't in the band, but, but was around to see a lot of it. And he loved the music that we did, but as much as that, uh, he loved the, the repartee and, and the, the constant humour between the three of us bouncing around. And, and, and Alan as well, the drummer for a while. Not Alan White, but Alan Ware, the, the drummer before that. Um, so yeah, we we were pretty funny guys, or at least we thought we were. Um, you know, when <laughs> you're yeah. fourteen, it's difficult to tell. But you know, com- comparatively, we were we were funny and and had a a common 
charisma which was stronger than our individual charismas that's for sure um, I often think about actually what it would have been like if I had been in a different band where because we thought that we needed to be like the Beatles in every way and one of the things that the Beatles did is what I just said which they didn't really have a leader yeah John was a leader but yeah more than any other band at the time it was egalitarian you know you had everyone had their favorite and they all had a slightly different role to play. There wasn't, it wasn't like Cliff Richard in the shadows. It wasn't Elvis. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so we had that going on that it had to be, uh, it had to be a group effort and we had to be a gang. And I wondered sometimes, sometimes what it would have been like had it not been like that for me. If I'd been in a band, either didn't like the Beatles or if I didn't think that the ethos of a sort of egalitarian group was paramount and what I would have been like as a front man because I think I was not really very good front man um, not compared to you know the people that I think are good um, and I think part of that was because I was loath to be a front man because it kind of went against the grain of what we were supposed to be doing um, and I wonder how good I would have been had I been either a solo artist or in a band that, like most bands, where it's like front man is front man and then, you know, there's everybody else. I wonder how that would have affected my progression as a, as a performer. There's a kind of thing with people that you grew up with where there's a kind of um, brotherly shorthand that you, like if you guys were all in the same room now, mm -hmm. I think you guys would get on just fine. Um, in spite of in spite of all the years and the silence and I, I really do because I think that you have this shared experience that nobody else has on this planet that that you guys have in common and you're, I think a you're, you're a beautiful spirit Eric, Alex but that's, that's I don't think that's true you don't think I think it, and I think if you put me and Steve in a room for five minutes um, it, it wouldn't be what what you just described no all right, well, hang on. Let me, let me make a note to myself here. Star Club reunion, not happening. <laughs> yeah, strike, strike that one out. That's, that's not going to happen. I would love it to happen, but um, I think that we would both need to change very substantial. Well, he, he would have to change a lot. I'm obviously also <laughs> it's already a problem. He's not even here. It's already a problem. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, fucking hell, man. Like, uh, well, yeah. Well, it, yeah, you, you you see it being, you see like that friction organically just happening. Yeah, I think that um, he, I mean, again, I, I'm always, always, always happy to tell you my side of everything and be completely open with all the fuck ups I've done and, and the things that yeah. you know, I've made mistakes with and stuff. You know, I think that if, one of the reasons, one of the differences between myself and your other guests, other than, you know, the, the, the pauses and the fucking, uh, the constant changing of subject and the, the lack of professionalism is that <laughs> I'm not ever, ever trying to sell something. It's least of right. all myself. You know, I, I'm ne never trying to, you know, tell people that I'm great or to listen to my latest album or try and be cool or any of that stuff. I, I, I've gone way, way fucking past that. I don't give a shit. I just talk to you uh, as, as honestly as I possibly can about anything and, and everything is open. And I'll, I'll talk about, you know, the, the worst possible times in my life and there's my parents and times that I was horrible to people and that I was dumb and, 
you know, frightened or, or whatever. I, there's no filter there, I don't care. Um, so I think that must be in some contrast to your other guests, right? Because no. most people are not like that because they, 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 they have lives to lead and things to sell or images to, to portray or whatever. Um, but what I won't do is I won't tell you, your listeners, what other people may or may not have said because that's for them to say. So for instance, I won't tell you if I've, if I've spoken to Julian, right. Um, which I have in the last few years, he came down to see me before I left for Thailand. I haven't seen him for a long time. And that was nice. He's on my my very, very small list of Facebook friends. And there's, you know, kind of still kind of gets my jokes and kind of still get his. <laughs> I, I would, I would very much, if I'm honest, I would very much like to be close friends with him again. I don't know how that would work, but anyway, but I can't tell you what he would tell me about his relationship with Steve or what he thinks of Steve. Right. And that that's, for him, that's, that's for him to say. How did being in a band affect your personality? Being in a band actually stopped me from being a much less pleasant person. If you can imagine me being less pleasant than this. Um, but <laughs> early on it was, it was like, they were going to chuck me out of the band, like within you know the first month or so, because it's like, you're just a bully. You know, you can't, you can't do this. If you want to work with us, you can't be, I mean, this was said in, in the language of a 13 year old. So of course it wasn't this, this clear, but, but paraphrasing was, you know, you have to learn to work with others. You can't just use your, um, your alphaness for want of a, a better word to get your way. That's, that's not going to fly. Right. Right. So that, that taught me a lesson that made me have to change my personality and my approach to people. And God knows what I'd have ended up if I hadn't have been in that band, you know, um, you might think that I'm like that now, but without that mitigating factor of having to always make sure that it's a group decision, always make sure that you bring people along with you rather than saying you're fucking doing this and you're fucking doing that. Right. Uh, but well, actually, I did do that one time when we, which was useful because that was the song that got us the record deal. But most of the time, you know, I, I wasn't like that. Oh, I definitely wasn't as much like that as I could have been. Um, but, uh, but if I met Steve now without all of those years of, of having to work cooperatively and, you know, he's distilled into his essence and I've distilled into my essence um you know i'm all about uh sincerity right um and i'm very honest about all the fuck ups that i've made and and the the uh the problems that i have and and the the how would you say the the mistakes I've made, the ways that I've acted badly, the ways that I still act badly, the ways that I've mistreated people or mistreated myself, the the dumb things that I've done. You know, I'm, I'm very uh, invested in being sincere about that with myself and other people because because sincerity sincerity to me is almost the highest virtue. I know it's, you know it should be love or it should be you know. <laughs> fraternity or whatever and i don't discount those but but if something isn't sincere 
for me, it's worthless. And I've always right. been like that. And, I, and I'm, I'm more like that now, maybe than ever. I always had a secret kind of hope that there'd be a Star Club reunion and you guys would all be best friends again. I'm not saying that I wouldn't do it. I would actually love to be best friends with Steve and Joe again. I would love that more than anything. I just don't see how it's possible. But the other thing about me, Alex, as you know, is that there's nothing I'm saying on air to you that I wouldn't take and say in person. That is certainly the truth, Mr. Vice. No argument there. Owen Vice of Star Club, hope you enjoyed that. A lot of interesting things that happened after that conversation. He and Julian uh, came on the show, and that was a really cool episode. And then Steve French came on by himself, and that was a cool episode. And Owen listened, and I didn't know what he was going to say about that, but he, uh, he called me and he said, you know, I listened to Steve's episode, and I don't really have any argument with anything he said. I pretty much agree with most of it. So that was interesting, and I was hoping to get everybody on together, but that didn't happen. Anyway, I have a lot of conversations with Owen that were recorded in the name of preserving the Star Club legacy, so you'll be hearing those in the future. But for now, I hope this was entertaining. I hope you enjoyed it. Talking to Owen uh, is just an incredible experience because he's so smart, so funny, so lightning fast, and so uncensored that uh, you really just get the truth in its most unvarnished uh, iteration. I, I love talking to him, and I certainly certainly miss our conversations. I, I miss him. I hope he's okay. And, um, you know, I wish I had a, an answer or a direction to point to you or uh, some kind of reassurance that everything's all right. I just don't. I don't have any evidence to the contrary, only a big absence uh, from where he used to be. So all social media, dark, cell phone, not working, uh, not been seen in a very long time. But uh, I hope he's well. I hope he's healthy. I hope he's happy. And I hope everything's going okay for him because he really is a remarkable person. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. I will tell you we have two live events coming up. Uh, in late August, on the 31st, I'll be in conversation with the author Hilary Zaid. And at the end of September, on the 27th, I'll be in conversation with the author Lauren Groff. Dates, times, and venues will be announced shortly, so be on the lookout. You can email me at editor at stereoembersmagazine.com or follow me on what's left of Twitter at Embers Editor or follow me on Instagram at Embers Podcast. Don't forget to check out bombshellradio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. And one more reminder, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that's most comfortable for you, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. Let's close the show with the song that I have publicly declared to be the greatest pop song of the 90s, Hard to Get by Star Club. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Bombshell.